0: Well, if you would this morning, let's go back to Mark chapter 15. And we are just a few weeks away from finishing our study through the book of Mark. Uh, But I definitely want to park here for just a little bit because we have made it all the way to the cross. We're going to the crucifixion this morning. Uh, We've seen very clearly at this point that uh, Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant that is uh, a fulfilled prophecy from the book of Isaiah, most specifically Isaiah 53. Uh, we've seen that Mark is much more concerned with the works of Christ as opposed to His words. And, you know, it's moving from one event to another, one one healing, one exorcism. Uh, it's just constantly moving from event to event. And we've been in crucifixion week since Mark chapter 11 now, quite a few months that we've preached through these last few chapters. And we've, uh, we saw last week uh, that Christ was standing before Pontius Pilate and uh, before the mob. And, you know, Pilate knew he was innocent. He knew that uh, the Sanhedrin had brought him there for jealousy's sake. And so he knew he was innocent. He even symbolically took a bowl of water and washed his hands as if he was washing his hands of the blood of Jesus I hope he repented because that's not going to go too well for him in eternity. But um, So we find ourselves here. He's, he's turned him over to the mob. They released Barabbas, who actually was a murderous insurrectionist. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at the proceedings of the crucifixion and most specifically who it was that was being crucified. And I want to start a little mini-series this morning on this chapter. Uh, it may go just two parts, maybe three, but I want to look at the thought of why the cross matters. Why the cross matters. Let's read our text this morning. Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter fifteen, beginning in verse sixteen. Mark fifteen and verse sixteen. It says, "And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band." And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, whatever man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left that the Scripture will be fulfilled, which said, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe, And they that were crucified with Him reviled Him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, and put it on a reed, and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone... Let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. Lord, we're just so unworthy. Lord, we thank You for salvation through Christ. God, if there's one in our midst this morning that maybe doesn't know Jesus and the pardon of their sin, God, I pray that You would give them repentance and faith, God, under the pardoning of their sin. Uh, God, I just pray that You would remove me out of the way, uh, Lord, that I could just preach the cross with clarity and power, Lord, this most sacred story, one of the most sacred texts in all of the Bible. And I pray that You would make it real in our hearts this morning. And we'll thank You and praise You for it. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. So we're looking at the thought of why the cross matters. You know, if if you were to go into a public place, whether it be Walmart or the park, the mall, um, and you were to ask somebody if they have heard of Jesus Christ, almost 100% of the time they're going to say yes. If you were to ask them, do you believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Yes, he actually walked this earth. Most people would say that. Do you really believe that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross? The vast majority of people would say yes. The Muslims don't believe that. And even the Jehovah's Witnesses try to say that he was crucified on a stake, you know, because the Romans had a way of crucifying people on stakes. But, you know, but I I was being facetious. But... (laughs) But, uh, but they, would, they would admit to those facts. They would say, yeah, he was, he was a real person. Yeah, I mean, a historical fact. He was crucified, no doubt. The Romans crucified him. And then you ask them, why does that matter to you today? Why does that, what relevance does that have to us today? And most people wouldn't have an answer for that question. Certainly not the right one. And so I want to ask you this morning, why does the cross matter to you? Why should, why, 2,000 years later, why should the cross matter to us? It's the most important event in all of human history. It ought to matter to us. Amen. Right. But here's the thing I, I believe this is the central reason why people don't get it. It has no relevance in their life. They don't like to talk about it. They don't really think about it. When they think about the crucifixion of Jesus, it's just a historical fact like World War I or something of that. It's just something that happened back in the past that we can study about and learn some things about. And the reason they miss it is because they don't know who Jesus Christ is. They don't understand and they don't know the one that died on that cross that we're still talking about today. And had they known Him, it would be a big deal. Right. And so when I'm asking the question, why the cross matters, we're talking about part one here. I want to look specifically at the one that died on that cross. Because if you don't know who He is, it's not going to matter. And it's not going to make sense. And so we have to know about the one that died on the cross, this, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But how can we be convinced that the Christ that was crucified was actually God in human flesh? That's the point I'm going to make. The one that died on that cross is God in human flesh. The one that created everything. The one that spoke the universe into existence. The one that hung the moon and the stars and the sun and the sky. The one that made you and me. The one that made all life and everything that we would see out these windows. The one that made those things. That's the one that came and died on the cross for sin. And if you don't believe that, it's it's really not going to matter a whole lot. But I'm going to show you this morning that... Jesus Christ is the Son of God and came to this earth as God in the flesh and died for sinners. How can we know that? I mean, how can we really be convinced about that? I mean, I'm a pretty analytical guy. I don't I don't ever like to believe stuff just because so-and-so said so. And I, it's always... I won't say always because in my younger days I was not... My young days as a preacher, I was not as careful about this. If if I heard somebody say something and I trusted that person, I took it as gospel truth and I've come to find out that even well-meaning people say things that just flat out aren't true. And I really, in, in this Google age, this age of Facebook, I mean, you can you can get on the internet, you can check anything within just a few seconds. I try to make it a point to not say things that I couldn't back up with sources. I really strive to do that. So I'm an analytical guy. I don't, I, look, I don't want to just believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead because somebody said so. Uh, why do we really believe and know that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? Well, I want to say this before I really get into the evidence. I do think it's important to have evidence. I do think it's important to know why we believe the things that we believe. Truth never fears a challenge. But here's what I want to convey to you today. I do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God just because I could prove it evidentially. I believe it because of His revelation. Not only in Scripture, but but the fact that He saved me as a 14-year-old boy. I didn't know anything about anything, really. I just knew that I was a great sinner who was in need of a great Savior. He convicted me of my sins, and it's the realest thing that has ever happened to me. And so, yes, we do go from there. We we don't need confirmation, but it doesn't hurt to have affirmation. And so it's not just based on an empty feeling. Oh, I just felt something. We shouldn't go on that. So this is the other half of that. How can we be convinced that Jesus Christ, in fact, was God come to this earth? Well, number one, I want to talk about His personal proclamations for a minute. Personal proclamation. Look at uh, Mark... Chapter uh, 15 um, verses, or excuse me, I think it's 14. Yes, I I wrote down the wrong chapter in my notes, but back up to where we were a few weeks ago. Uh, Mark 14 and verse 61 says, "...but he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Caiaphas the high priest is asking Jesus when he's on trial." if he's the Son of God. That son of the blessed, that's the only time that phrase is used. And if you notice, the word blessed is capitalized. This is a roundabout way of Caiaphas asking him point blank to his face if he's really the Son of God. But he's so angry at the thought that somebody could claim to be the Son of God and equal with God, he could not even bring himself to say the name of Yahweh. So he said, are you the son of the blessed? (laughs) Look at what Jesus said in verse 62. And he said, I... That's that's about as clear-cut as you can get right there, isn't it? But he goes even further. In fact... His answer goes so far beyond Caiaphas' question that they're just their mind is blown at what he says. I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? He is blaspheming God is what they're saying. And um, this quote that he has is from... Uh, Daniel chapter 7, we've been looking at that a little bit on Wednesday nights in our study through the book of Revelation. But the Son of Man, that name was the most popular name that Jesus called Himself. I think 81 times in the gospel He referred to Himself as the Son of Man. And the Jews understood the Son of Man to be divine, to be God, coming in the clouds as both judge and king. And Jesus said, yeah, that, that Son of Man that's coming in the clouds of power that Daniel talked about, that's me. No wonder they got so angry. But listen, this isn't the only time that Jesus did this. Uh, he made this claim several times. Uh, you don't have to turn here, but uh, John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33, where He clearly told the Pharisees that I and my Father are one. And they took up stones to stone Him. And He says, for what good work do you stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for a good work. We're stoning you because you as a man make yourself to be God. So somebody, and I talked to, I actually talked to Jehovah's Witnesses a good bit because there's a video on my YouTube channel where I was, I was kind of debating, witnessing to um, some Jehovah's Witnesses on Mississippi State University campus. And so I, I'll get comments, per, I mean, just about every week and... Job's witnesses will always bring up the fact that you know, Jesus wasn't God, that He never claimed to be God. And I, I point them to these places, and the only way that you can come to their conclusion is because they're looking at the Scriptures through an evil heart of unbelief. They will not let God be God. They, they try to subject God to their logic. They won't submit to the Scriptures. And what I usually tell them is that, well, somebody needs to have told the Jews that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying because they clearly understood what he was saying. Oh, we're going to stone you because you, as a man, make yourself to be God. And guess what? Jesus never corrected them. He didn't say, hold on, guys, oh, this is all just a big misunderstanding. I didn't actually mean that. Well, of course, he did. But that's not the only time he said that. John chapter 8, he's talking to the Pharisees again. They were bragging on Abraham being their father. And Jesus told him, yeah, uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about uh, Genesis 18 when the Lord, along with two angels, visited Abraham in his tent. You can go back and look at that. Who was that Lord? Jesus said, that was me. He rejoiced to see my day. They said, you're not even 40 years old and you've seen our father Abraham. And then he went up another notch. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. So not only am I the God that spoke to Abraham, I'm the God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. The I am, yeah, that was me too. Yeah, Jesus claimed to be God. And he made no buts about it. He was not even ambiguous about it. Um, I think about John 20. Verses 28 and 29, this is after the resurrection. And Thomas sees him for the first time. And uh, he sees the nail prints in his hands, in his feet, in his side, in his resurrected, glorified body. And Thomas falls down and, and, and worships him and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus didn't say, Thomas, don't do that. I'm not Lord and God. Uh, I'm, don't rob God of worship. I'm, don't worship me. That's not what he did. He commended him and he said, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen. good job. You finally get it, son. Blessed are they that believe and have not seen. That would be us. So he commended him for worshiping him as God. If he's not God, he's a liar and he's robbing worship from the true God. But he's not a liar because everything he said is true. I think about John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, which is a reference to the Trinity. God is referenced three times right there. In verse 14, and the Word, God, the God the Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so you can either take what Scripture says as truth, or you can just make up whatever you want to, but you cannot take Scripture and say that Jesus is not God in the flesh. That you're you're going to have to do an incredible amount of mental gymnastics to make that work. Um, the best thing to do is just submit to what He said. We can be convinced that Christ was God in the flesh because of His personal proclamations. And I've I've said this before, and we hit on this toward the beginning of our Mark study. Uh, Yeah, anybody can claim to be God. I mean, I I could claim to be God this morning. Uh, But the difference is backing it up. He backed it up. He, did, he performed miracles. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He exercised devils. And guess what? He rose from the dead three days later. Did you know that every single year... You can look this up on the Internet. Every single year, um, you, you know, you have tombs or, or grave sites, rather, that, that are popular tourist attractions. And usually every year, it's the same, pretty much the same top ten list. Uh, Elvis is somewhere in that top ten. I think Muhammad is somewhere in that top ten. Guess what the most visited gravesite in the world is? It's the only one that's empty. (laughs) And that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, here here is the dichotomy that any thinking person, the conclusion that any thinking person has to come to. And that is that either Jesus Christ is a liar and a lunatic and we need to throw this Bible in the trash can, sell the church, and go fishing on Sundays. At least when it gets warmer, amen. (laughs) Or, what he said is true, and he's God in the flesh, and his word is true, every word of it. He really is alive, and he really has the power to forgive sins. I know it's the latter, don't you? There's no middle ground in this stuff. I get so tickled at people that say, Oh, he was a good teacher, he was a good rabbi. No. You can't say the things He said. You can't make the claims He made if it wasn't true and be a good person. What would we do if we went to Walmart and somebody was standing up on one of the shelves in a white coat claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be of eternity past? We'd lock somebody like that up in a padded room. Of course, I don't know. Nowadays, they might... Become a politician. Get voted in office. I don't know. But we see the, the proclamations that he made. And so you have to be on one side of the fence or the other. That's one of the things that brought C.S. Lewis to Christ. Uh, J.R. Tolkien was a good friend. The, the, the author of Lord of the Rings, he was a Christian. And I even saw in the documentary they had a great saying on this where C.S. Lewis went from being an atheist and then he came around and realized that he needed to be at least a theist because it just made no sense that all this stuff came from nothing. So he was talking to Tolkien and he said, Yeah, I just want to tell you, I've become a theist now. I believe that there's evidence for a God. And, you know, that Jesus guy, he's all right too. I think he had some good teaching and, you know, I think he, he was a good rabbi. But, you know, he wasn't God and, and, and uh, Tolkien laughed at him. And Lewis said, Why are you laughing? He said, Because you don't hear what you're saying. And he made the exact same argument about this dichotomy that I'm giving to you. And C.S. Lewis was like, I hate you. (laughs) And he, because he cared enough about truth to realize what he was saying is true. You can't make those claims and be a good person unless what he claims is true. And it is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh. But the second thing I want you to know is the practical evidence. Uh, Look look back in uh, Mark 15 and verse 32. It says, Let Christ the King of Israel now descend from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified reviled Him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now... um. You can go on down to where in verse 37 it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. I told you that when we began this particular scene here, this particular scene really goes back to the opening trial of, of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And basically, the Sanhedrin says, well, Jesus said, I am the Son of God. The Sanhedrin rips their clothes and says, no, you're not. And then the centurion says, oh, yes, he is, because he saw these things. And I want to talk about the, the practical evidence for a minute. Now, now you would think now the, the Bible is the only book that you can do when I'm fixing to do it's the only one that is supported by history and facts and archaeology and things of that nature. You couldn't do what I'm about to do with the Book of Mormon. You couldn't do it. Uh, you couldn't do it with uh, any of the Muslim holy books, except for the parts where it agrees with the Old Testament. Uh, you, you couldn't do it with the. You couldn't do it with any other holy book, any other creed. Nothing, because this is true. It's supported by history. It was done out in the open, and so you know you would think. If this event, the, the, the crucifixion of Christ, if it was really such a big deal and it really happened and there was really a darkness over all the land and the earthquake and all that, you know, you might could find something that would tell you about that. Well, we do. Even though it's been 2,000 years ago, there's plenty of historical evidence uh, to back this up. Um, I want to read this to you. i got several historical quotes. Uh, Reporting on Emperor Nero's decision to blame the Christians for the fire that had destroyed Rome in AD 64, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, that's a reference to Christ. Which, number one, just that one statement proves he was a historical figure. But it says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And so the historian Tacitus, who was not a Christian, is writing a letter to this Roman official, and he's talking about the um, the Christians who got their name from their founder who suffered a horrible penalty of death under Tiberius. That's exactly what we're talking about. The cross historically happened. Um, another important source of evidence about Jesus in early Christianity can be found in letters of Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan. Uh, Pliny was the Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. In one of his letters, dated around 112 AD, he asked Trajan's advice. About the appropriate way to conduct legal proceedings against those accused of being Christians. Pliny says that uh, he needed to consult the Ember about the issue because of a great multitude of every age, class, and gender that stood for Christianity. At one point in his letter, Pliny relates some of the information he has learned about these Christians. Listen to what he said. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. What are we doing today? We're meeting on a certain fixed day. We, wait, we waited after it got light, but uh, we're here on this fixed day. They were in it a meeting on a fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, But never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery. Never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Isn't that amazing? First century church doing what we're doing now. And singing unto Jesus Christ as if He was a god. Imagine that. Who would ever do that? (laughs) Um. And one more before I move to my next point. The Jewish historian Josephus, um, he said, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats, miracles, exorcisms, raising of the dead. This is a Jewish historian, not a Christian. Listen to how he described Christ. A wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Well, why would he say that? Because he's God. For he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ when Pilate condemned him to be crucified. Those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared restored to life and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. (laughs) Josephus says, I saw him. I saw him do incredible things. He was killed on Roman cross, and I saw him walking around three days later like nothing had happened to him. Now he didn't. He didn't say it was a resurrection, a marvelous thing. Like you know, he didn't. He, you know, all the people that attest to this try to explain it away, but in doing so, they admit that it happened. Now, when we think about crucifixion itself, now think about this. And I, I think a lot of people miss this because the cross for us has become so. Uh, legendary, so to speak. I mean, it's just such a thing that we, we raise up and we think about it and, and it has a special meaning to us. But to the Romans, it was a regular method of execution. It was, it was the way they killed common criminals. It was no different than the electric chair a few decades ago in America. Um, it's just not something that you would want to glorify. It was very common. And think about this. We're just shy... Of 7,000 miles away from Jerusalem. I, I looked it up this morning. We're just shy from right here. We're about 7,000 miles away from Jerusalem. And we're 2,000 years removed from when this happened. And yet we're still talking about it. We're still preaching about it. We're still singing about it. We're still worshiping God about this event. Well, why, why in the world do you know of anybody else that, that you could name that was crucified on a Roman cross. Some people might say, well, yeah, I know Peter, but the only reason we know that is because Jesus said that was going to happen. Other than that, can we name anybody? No, but I couldn't. Why is that? What makes this so different than the death of a common criminal? In fact, crucifixion was so common in Rome that history tells us, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, whenever Titus invaded... Uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, and he destroyed the temple, destroyed the city. He took the residents there, the resistance, and he crucified all of them. And there were so many crosses. This statement is amazing to me. But I was reading some eyewitness accounts of what Titus did to the people that had resisted. He said, whoever wrote this said, that he crucified so many people... That they ran out of crosses for the hills and they ran out of hills for the crosses. Think about that. That's how common it was. And yet we're talking about Jesus. Why is that? Because He's God. He's God in the flesh. We couldn't name anybody else that that died on a cross. Certainly not that we're worshiping or talking about today. It's the fact that it was God in the flesh that died on that cross. That's why we're talking about it. And the practical evidence points to that fact. I just gave you three secular sources from that time period that acknowledge that Jesus was a real historical person, that He really died on the cross, and according to Josephus, He did some amazing things, and He was seen walking around His disciples after His death. Pretty amazing stuff right there. But then number three, and I'm, I'm coming in for a landing... Uh, yeah, that probably is a joke, but uh. <laughs> I want to talk about the powerful manifestations. This blows my mind. Powerful manifestations, verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, that is noon, that's midday right there, the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until three o'clock. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it in a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. We're going to talk about that next week. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, first of all, when you read this text... Now, understand in the Old Testament, there were hundreds and even over a thousand prophecies made about the future. And much of those prophecies, not all of them, but they will be fulfilled, the ones that haven't, but most of them were fulfilled in the New Testament. I think Jesus Christ by Himself fulfilled 323 prophecies concerning Himself. Most of those, the last 24 hours of His life. And in this text we just read, there were several prophecies fulfilled. Uh, In verse 24... um, This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22 and verse 18. They parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. This is David writing almost a thousand years prior to this event. Uh, In verse 34, that's a fulfillment of Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You can read about that in Psalm 22. Uh, Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Uh, Verses 35 and 36 are fulfillment of Psalm 69 and verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Isn't that amazing how David pegged that a thousand years prior? How do you do that? It's because you're writing under the inspiration of a God who is outside of time, who not only knows the future, He's ordained the future. And so, you know, the cross was God's plan from eternity past. It was never God's plan B. And here's another thing that's amazing to me. We have all these events going on. And it says there was darkness at, at noon when the sun is highest in the sky. I find that interesting that this would be the time this would happen. But at noon, there was a darkness over the whole land. If you look at Luke's gospel account of this, you find the darkness was over the whole earth. So this darkness covered the whole earth, not just Israel, but the whole earth. Can you imagine that, like if if we had been here, if we had occupied this area and the mountains of Utah 2,000 years ago on that day, we could look up at the sky and say, wow, something's happening. (laughs) The whole world, in a way, was a witness to this event. And, you know... There's been some that have tried to explain that away and say that it was a solar eclipse. First of all, I'm talking about the evidence. First of all, based on the moon phase at that time, it would have been impossible for a solar eclipse. But secondly, uh, the record for the longest solar eclipse in history was 7 minutes and 27 seconds. That was on June the 15th of 743 B.C. Um, this was the sun, the S-U-N. This was the sun rebelling against the murder of its creator by refusing to shine. This is is not the sun being blocked. This is the sun refusing to shine. And you say, well, if those things actually happen, there ought to be a record of that as well. Well, we've got that too. Um, The worldwide darkness I'm talking about is also a historical fact. Phallus... Uh, wrote a history. Um, it's actually in his third book of histories, what I'm fixing to read. It explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun, but by doing that, he's admitting that it happened. Um, he said, apparently, Thallus attempted to ascribe a naturalistic explanation to the darkness during the crucifixion. Thallus recorded this in about AD 52, which is amazing, because that's, that's before even the book of Luke was written. So this guy was there. He knows what he's talking about. This is not secondhand information. And he says, um, <clears throat> he says, in the fourth year of the 202 Olympiad, which is AD 33 to 37, when Jesus was crucified, he said there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day. So that the stars even appeared in the heavens, there was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. That was a secular Roman historian who lived during that time and said it was so dark you could see the stars outside in, at noontime during the day. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I could take you to Africanus or uh, the Greek historian Phlegum. They They say the same thing. I've got it here in my notes. Um, In fact, I'll I'll read what Africanus said as I move along because he kind of gives a synopsis of what everybody has said. But he said, On the whole world there was pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake. We read something about that too, didn't we? And many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of history calls... "...as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. For the Hebrews celebrate the Passover on the fourteenth day according to the moon, and the passion of our Savior falls on the day before the Passover. But an eclipse of the sun takes place only when the moon comes under the sun. And it cannot happen at any other time but in the interval between the first day of the new moon and the last day of the old. That is at their junction. How then should an eclipse be supposed to happen when the moon is almost diametrically opposite of the sun?" Let opinion pass, however, let it carry the majority with it, and let this portent of the world be deemed an eclipse of the sun, like others, a portent only to the eye. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth, manifestly that one of which we speak, but what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake, the rending rocks... The resurrection of the dead, and so great a perturbation throughout the universe. Surely no such event as this is recorded for a long period. And so you have all these secular historians trying to explain away this miracle, but they're admitting that it happened. That's the whole point. They're telling on themselves. It's kind of like CNN. You know, when they're talking, they're lying. In fact, but they give enough information to know what the actual truth is. And so, isn't that amazing that these things were recorded? it could not have been an eclipse, but even if it was, isn't it amazing? A three hour eclipse of the sun as Jesus Christ is on the cross and as the earth is trembling and as the temple veil is being torn into all this, you know. Like I said, if somebody just dismisses these things, they're doing it from an evil heart of unbelief. You know, they don't, have, they don't have a problem with Jesus Christ being a historical figure or even dying on the cross. They have a problem with Him being the risen Son of God who has authority over all the universe. They don't really like that part. Yeah. And so we see even from uh, the practical evidence, all of this supports the fact that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that God was the one that died on the cross. That these secular events attest to the same things we find in Scripture. No wonder the Roman centurion said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So I want to close with this thought in conclusion. Why does the cross matter? I've given you facts. I've given you evidence. But why does it matter? Why does the cross matter? Well, it's because of the one that willingly gave his life on the cross to save sinners. By the way... The Bible makes it clear to make it a point that Jesus Christ gave up the ghost. You know, most of the time when somebody was crucified, I mean, the the Roman crucifixion was designed to keep somebody alive for days so they would suffer for days. And Jesus died in six hours, which you can tell by Pilate's reaction surprised him. Uh, And that's because they didn't take his life from him. He gave it up. He laid his life down. He could have called thousands of angels to come destroy the world and set him free, but he didn't. He lifted up his bloody head, and he looked the mob in the eye. He looked the invisible forces of darkness in the eye, and he said, It is finished. And then he gave up the ghost. He gave up his life because he's in control of that. Uh, Acts 2 and verse 23, it says, Him talking about Christ being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, think about the implications of this. This is why the cross matters. The Creator of all things entered into His own creation and died by the hands of His own creatures. He created the womb that gave Him birth He created the thorns that were mashed down on His brow. He made the trees that were used to carve the cross. He made the iron ore that was used to make the nails that went through His hands and feet. He made the hands that would drive those nails all to glorify God the Father and to save sinners. Christ's work on the cross is the only thing that can satisfy the wrath of God against sin. And if there was another way, then Christ died in vain. Christ paid the penalty and that our sin, Christ paid the penalty that our sin against God requires. And if we would just believe and trust in him, and repent of our dead works, we would be forgiven and cleansed for all our sin. Why does the cross matter? Because the Son of Christ came to die in the place of sinners like us. Because it was God that died upon the cross, there are eternal implications even for us today. And we're going to get more into the details of that next week. And I I love this. I was watching a little sermon clip somebody sent me from Alistair Begg. And he was talking about Jesus being crucified between two thieves, which is also a fulfillment of prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Uh, but he said, can you imagine? And of course, some of, you know, some of the analogy breaks down, but you can get the point of this. He was saying, can you imagine being the, the man on the cross that Jesus told him? You know, he said, Lord, remember me. When you enter your kingdom, the the key word there is Lord. He called Him Lord. By the way, I I didn't find this out until the other day. I was coming across some things. You know that Judas never called Jesus Lord. He called Him Rabbi. He never called Him Lord. Man on the cross says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, This very day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Of course, the other thief, even though facing death, all he wanted was Jesus to get him off the cross. If you're really the Son of God, if you're the Messiah, get me off this cross. Get yourself off and get me off and let's go home. That's what a lot of people want from Jesus is Him for, you know, just to do what they want Him to do. Be a genie in a bottle, do what you want me to. Leave my sin alone, but fix my problems. But the other one in a humble spirit said, Lord, just please, if you just remember me. And he promised him he'd be in paradise. And what Alistair Begg said was this. Can you imagine that man getting up to heaven at the gates? And he said, I don't know who would meet him. Probably, let's just say an angel. And the angel says, well, what are you doing here? And the man says, well, I don't really know. Um, And the angel says, well, I mean, are you familiar with the doctrine of justification? Never heard of it. He said, well, I mean... Do you, do you attend a church anywhere? What's a church? Well, have you been, have you been baptized as, a, as evidence that, you know, you're a believer in Jesus Christ? He said, I don't, I've never been baptized. He said, and he's asking all these questions. And he said, and the angel finally just says, well, what are you doing here? The man says, I don't know. All I can say is this. The man on the middle cross said, I could come. And that's exactly what salvation is. It's believing on Him. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and understanding that all we are on our best day is worm dirt. That our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. That our sin is a stench in the nostrils of a holy God and there's no good works we could ever do to erase that. God is a holy God. He's a God of justice and wrath, and He must punish sin. But He's so loving that He sent Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, to live as the God-man, to live a sinless life in our place, to die on the cross and take the wrath of God the Father that we deserve. Take our sin and the wrath for that sin. And to be raised from the dead three days later. And all we have to do to be saved and to have our sins forgiven and to be in a right relationship with God, and to be assured a home in heaven, all we have to do is say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I could never earn your forgiveness. I could never be good enough, but I know that Jesus Christ is enough. (laughs) I know that what He did is enough. I know that what He did on the cross satisfied the wrath of God the Father in my place, and my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, (laughs) but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You know, when we get to heaven, for those of us that are saved, that are, are born-again children of God, it's going to be the same answer. Because, look, we do have a Bible. We do know about baptism and justification and, and, and grace and all these things. But you know what? When we get to heaven and somebody says, what are you doing here? The man, the man on the cross said, I could come. That's it. The man on the cross said, I could come. All because of Jesus. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. And I pray that you know Him this morning. Next week we're going to get into detail about the implications of what that means for us personally. What the cross means. even The cross is not just for lost people. The cross is for saved people. And so we're going to look at that more next week. Would you stand as she comes? <coughs> Heavenly Father, <coughs> we just love you so much. and God, sometimes we can get tangled up in the red tape of religion. We can get callous. We can get uh, apathetic to what you've done for us, uh, but God, I remember something that Spurgeon said one time. He said, "My theology can be summed up in this: Christ died for me." And God, I just pray that if there's one that's lost at the sound of my voice, they've never been born again. They've never put their they never truly put their faith and trust solely in Jesus Christ and His finished work to make them right with God and to get them to heaven and to have their sins forgiven. I pray they would repent and believe that, Lord, that they would just look to Jesus. As simple as it is just to look to Jesus, to be saved today. Uh, God, I pray for those that may be suffering and hurting, today, may be going through a trial. God, would you remind them of how much that you love them? Would you remind us of the cross and what it means, God? Not only that it satisfied your wrath, but it also satisfied your love. Lord, that it magnifies Your love for sinners. And Lord, I pray that we would be constantly reminded of that and live a life, uh, God, from the cross. Lord, I, that's where our life really begins. And uh, I just pray that uh, You would search our hearts, that You would grant repentance, soften hearts, and make us more like You today. And we'll thank You and praise You for it. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.